0: Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast in which we shall take a look at the trade-offs that are becoming ever more evident between the advancement of mass communication and social media technologies and the ways in which those advancements contribute to the degradation of social cohesion. And I want to let you know that there are two clips in the show today from the mid-90s. You'll be able to tell which those are because they sound like they're from the 90s. They make references to things like cyberspace and the information superhighway. So, no, those aren't just really out-of-date terms. They're really uh, out-of-date clips. But they are all the more impressive to be heard today for their age. Whereas the first clip we're going to hear is less obvious. It's from 2006, a very special year, by the way. The year Twitter was founded, the year Google bought YouTube, the year Facebook introduced their news feed feature, and the year Best of the Left was launched. Three events that have been threatening to destabilize society ever since, and one that has been working to undo the damage. I'll let you guess which is which on those. So, as you hear this first clip, just know that none of those destabilizing events were even on the radar yet, but the discussion still couldn't be more relevant to today. So clips today are from On The Media, C-SPAN Book TV, Future Tense, The McNeil Lehrer News Hour, and Land of the Giants.
1: The late media critic Neil Postman argued in his seminal book Amusing Ourselves to Death that as TV prevailed over the printed word, it impaired our ability to make sense of a world of information. He observed that there was no subject so serious, be it war or faith or the future of the nation, that it could not be reduced to tasty, if incoherent, infobites. Exhibit A was the nightly news, which he said featured, quote, a type of discourse that abandons logic, reason, sequence, and rules of contradiction. He went on. In aesthetics, I believe the name given to this theory is Dadaism. In philosophy, nihilism. In psychiatry, schizophrenia. In the parlance of the theater, it is known as vaudeville. J. Rosen writes the blog pressthink.org and is a professor in the journalism department of New York University, where Postman taught. Rosen counts Postman as both mentor and hero, and Amusing Ourselves to Death, now in a new edition, as ever more relevant. He says Postman never wavered in his belief in the superiority of the printed word.
2: It was in print that we learned how to make an argument cohere. It was in print that we learned that we could classify what we know and therefore make it available to us in a convenient way. And it was through print that we learned how to sustain an idea, sustain an argument over a long stretch of mental time so that our descriptions of the world could be as complex and nuanced as the world that we found out there. And as we moved from an oral to a writing to a print culture, Postman saw human intelligence and human character improving up to a point. And then a reversal began.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Now, the improvement that you're talking about is an increased emphasis on rationality. Mm -hmm. Postman talks about how changing technologies changed our relationship with what we call news.
2: In the era of newspapers, the information available to people was very connected to things they had to do. The original newspapers were meant for the trading classes, people who had decisions to make. The kind of news they learned about and the kind of life they led uh, matched in some way. That lasted up until the mid-19th century, And what he says in the 20th century is that it's completely out of whack.
1: News from everywhere Mm -hmm. uh, in which no action is called for.
2: Well, Neil has a very wonderful phrase for this. He says that information began to come to us that answered no question we had asked. And I think that puts it very, very well. The thing about the mass media and their reach across the globe is that they can furnish us with episodes and eruptions that don't have any necessary connection to our lives but might connect to us as human drama uh, or, as we sometimes say, pure entertainment.
1: Okay, so that brings us to the nightly news. News has now become nuggets, he felt, that had little relevance to us that we can't act on. And he dissects the classic news format, which we know hasn't changed, the content of it, the music of it, the anchors and their demeanor. Yes, he paid attention
2: not to the things most critics write about, sound bites, inaccuracies, sensationalism, but to these other very small things like the music that sets the tone for the muse has this enormous influence on sort of orienting us and telling us what kind of space we are in. He paid attention to the lead-ins and the intersections of one segment and another because in those moments of transition, television gave us its idea of how things were related to one another. Or not. Or not. That's why he made such a big deal, I think, properly
1: over the phrase, and now this. As he wrote, there's no murder so brutal, no earthquake so devastating, no political blunder so costly, for that matter, no ball scar so tantalizing or weather report so threatening that it cannot be erased from our minds by a newscaster saying, Now this. When he looked at
2: television, what he saw was no ethic of care whatsoever about the order or depth or meaning of each piece of data or image or segment that came through. And there was something about that, just the sheer randomness of it, that he saw as a kind of violence against us.
1: Now, Jay, the name of your blog, Press Think, is a word George Orwell might have coined. In fact, in the foreword to Amusing Ourselves to Death, Neil Postman says that we shouldn't be afraid of Orwell's dark vision of the world, as expressed in the novel 1984. What we should fear, actually, is Aldous Huxley's dark vision, as expressed in Brave New World. So what's the distinction that he was trying to draw here?
2: Neil was very concerned about how we lose things that are precious to us, including our freedoms. And these two books presented two different ways that could happen. It was Orwell's view that people could be controlled through power and coercion and intimidation, confusing their minds and getting them to accept lies. In Brave New World, people are not denied things. They're given whatever they want on the principle that pleasure is good. And why shouldn't we occupy ourselves with the things that bring us joy and sensation? It was Huxley's view that people could be controlled that way. Uh, Huxley thought he was describing something potential in the world. And Neil thought he was describing something that had arrived (laughs) and was here.
3: polling and um, uh, f- uh, bureaucratic forms, uh, any uh, uh, systematic and repeatable technique that tends to cause people to uh, constrain their thinking about the world. We talked a number of years ago about television. Um, what impact is technology having on television and what's, what's the impact on the country? Well, one of the reasons, Brian, that I I felt I did this book is that the the last time we talked, as you suggest, uh, was about a a book that was almost wholly devoted to television. And when I started to uh, think about that issue, I realized that you couldn't get an accurate handle on uh, what we Americans were all about by focusing on one medium, that you had to see television as part of a kind of um, system of techniques and technologies that are giving uh, shape uh, to our culture. For instance, um, if one wants to think about what has happened to public life in America, uh, and uh, one has to think, of course, first about television, but also about CDs, and also about um, uh, 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 all sorts of about well, faxes and telephones and all of the machinery that, that takes people out of public arenas and keeps them fixed in their homes so that we have a kind of privatization of American life. And one hears people say with some uh, considerable enthusiasm that in the future... Uh, putting television, computers, and the telephone together, people will be able to shop at home, vote at home, uh, do every, express uh, political preferences in, in many ways at home, so that they never have to go out in the street at all and never have to meet their fellow citizens in any context, because we'd have this ensemble of technologies uh, that keep us private, uh, away from, from citizens. In fact, I think uh, Ross Perot's idea of a town meeting uh, is a new kind of definition of town meeting because it doesn't imply co-presence uh, of people. He wants to do it via electronic media. So that uh, television, uh, as well as other technologies, redefine all sorts of things. I mean, television uh, has redefined uh, as I think we talked about last time, what we mean by a public debate. That uh, we used to use uh, the Lincoln-Douglas debates as an example as a kind of model or metaphor of what we mean by uh, political debate. Uh, These debates would go on for hours. Television has redefined it So now the two or possibly three candidates stand in front of the television camera and each one is given two minutes to respond to a very difficult question and uh, the opponent is given 60 seconds to reply. Now we still call this a debate, Uh, but it's a redefinition of of that term. And uh, uh, Rose Perot's suggestion that we use television as a form of uh, a, a town meeting is another redefinition of what we once meant by town meeting. So that the, one of the most interesting things about technology is that it redefines our language. It, it gives us different meanings uh, of older words, and very often we're not quite uh, as aware as we should be of how that process is working good or bad? Well, in this book I mostly emphasize the bad part. Uh, I've done that in most of my books, but I, owe, I admit in, uh, 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 happily at the beginning of the book that anyone who um, uh, looks at technology as an either-or development that is either all good or all bad um, is making a mistake that um, all technological uh, change is what I call a Faustian bargain. It gives you something, but it also taketh away something. Uh, Now, in America, and this is one of the reasons I thought I should write this book, uh, we tend to be extremely enthusiastic about technology, uh, about um, uh, what it's going to bring us, so that um, uh, almost any American uh, in considering uh, anything from uh, lasers to, uh, to computers to television uh, can tell you for a half hour or more what this new technology will do for us. But there are very few people who have ever considered what a new technology will undo. So I wrote my book from the point of view of what it will undo. How it will change and has changed for the worse, some of our social institutions and psychic habits. But um, it's this doesn't mean that I uh, I'm unaware of uh, the uh, positive possibilities of some of the new technologies. Religion, you you talk a lot about religion. What does the new technology do to religion? Well, I I, I fear uh, that. Um, our faith in technology uh, has weakened uh, a more traditional uh, sense of spirituality, uh, that technology implies a kind of uh, rational, uh, or I should say a, an emphasis on the rational, uh, because technologies work. That's, see, that's the wonderful thing about them. Uh, Airplanes do fly, and penicillin, uh, I think, tends to make people better. And uh, television does show you someone in some far-off place. So uh, uh, technology works in in an unambiguous way, uh, in, in the way that prayer, for instance, or even faith in God, doesn't always work. Uh, And I I don't think uh, all this began uh, yesterday. In fact, in the book I tried to show uh, how beginning, really in the 17th century, uh, the uh, the faith that people had in um, uh, uh, a benign design in the world uh, has weakened. And uh, in our own century, seems to have been replaced uh, uh, almost in a religious sense by a faith in uh, progress and progress through technology. We will reach heaven uh, if we can um, uh, produce bigger and better machinery and techniques. In fact, there are some people who even believe we can solve uh, the problem of death through technology. I think it's called, it it's called the cryogenics.
4: Brave New World is a fantastic parable about the dehumanisation of human beings. In the negative utopia described in my story, man has been subordinated to his own inventions, science, technology, social Aldous Huxley
5: wrote his seminal work in the early 1930s, a decade and a half before the arrival of 1984. It's also about a dystopian future world, but very different from that imagined by Orwell. Huxley's world is one of much more subtle enforcement and enslavement of rampant consumerism and of endless distraction. Many people believe that Brave New World was actually more accurate in predicting major elements of the world we live in today. Among them is Scott Stevens, editor of the ABC's Religion and Ethics website and also the co-host of The Minefield.
6: Well, if you think about it for a moment, the great threat within 1984 is a threat that's entirely external to human society. So it's the overweening, censorious, totalitarian state that tells you what to think, that tells you what to believe, that manufactures the economy of information so that you only have, you know, you have a, you have a deracinated form of speech. You have certain official forms of history.
5: Much like Maoist China.
6: Exactly like Maoist China. And here's where I think... What was really at work within Orwell's great novel was a fear of some of the tendencies that were emerging in the East rather than a prediction of what, what in fact was looming in the West. Huxley, I think, was far more attuned to the internal dynamics of Western culture. So, for instance, in Brave New World, you don't have to suppress the truth. You don't need an overweening state to try to hide the way that things really are from its citizens. You just need to drown citizens in distraction. Here's, again, Huxley had this remarkable way of describing what the media would become. He said the media would stop trading in information and instead it would trade in sentiment. So his vision of the future of television, for instance, was what he described as the feelies, You tune in, you plug in, in order to feel, in order to be distracted.
5: And that sense of constant distraction, I mean, that's one thing many of us talk about with regard to social media and our phones these days. That's exactly right. Huxley was the first to imagine
6: something like an attention economy, where what people would want is a series of endless distractions from the worries and cares of everyday life. And it's then the use of drugs like Soma, which gives you a mild high, but the main purpose of it is just to distract you in the same way as sex might, as the media might, as certain forms of extracurricular activity would.
5: And this drug Soma in the novel is, uh, it's required. People are obliged to take this drug. So it's a way of keeping the population docile uh, while they're also being distracted. That's exactly right. Soma takes the edges off.
6: It takes off the highs, but it also takes off the low. So much so that this, total form of both psychopharmaceutical and social life has the effect of filling one's daily experience with an endless series of preoccupations with what is fundamentally irrelevant. And here's where I think Huxley really enters into his own element. He saw the next frontier of capitalism's mode of Fordist production. He saw the next frontier of that being the media itself. So he refers, unlike totalitarian forms of propaganda, he saw democracy as requiring its own form of capitalist propaganda, which is you bury the truth in trivia so that people no longer go looking for what is true amid the flotsam of the true, the trivial, and the manufactured.
5: The big question, I suppose, is why do we know so much about 1984? Why do we see that as the great prescient dystopian novel? and not appreciate to the same extent the work of Huxley with Brave New World? I think that's a wonderful question. Why is it that 1984 shot back to the top of
6: the New York Times bestseller list in the three months following the election of Donald Trump? Why were new productions of uh, 1984 suddenly being featured in playhouses and theatres all over the world? The reason, I think, Anthony, is very, very, very simple. Ever since the late 1970s, part of the moral culture of the media has been to point to bad guys, to identify who's at fault, to tell you what they did wrong, to array their audience against the real culprits, and then to tell you what you ought to think of them, to enact forms of public moral judgment, in other words. George Orwell fits neatly into that because the threat in 1984 is all external, always external enemies, whereas Aldous Huxley, he's saying we have been complicit in our own self-enslavement we are the ones who bought into a culture of endless distraction the fault dear brutus lies not with our stars but with ourselves and i think that's precisely what huxley is doing we are co-participants in
5: our own position of cultural servitude and it's easy to see why that's an uncomfortable proposition for people to take on That's exactly right, because
6: if you no longer rely on external sources for your sense of internal feeling, if you can no longer be reliant on this system of distractions to take you away from the worries and cares of everyday life, then it means it's time to grow up and become a fully functioning, properly engaged democratic citizen.
5: Orwell and Huxley were contemporaries, weren't they? They knew each other personally. What was the connection there? Yeah, it's actually very funny. And people forget, because
6: Brave New World sounds like such a contemporary book, that Brave New World was written in 1932, or it was published in 1932. Uh, Orwell's book came much later. Huxley, of course, was older than Orwell. He was Orwell's French teacher at Eton College. It's a very, very strange, almost schoolmasterly relationship. Orwell was quite keen to get Huxley's approval of 1984. Uh, Huxley himself was quite approving of the book. He thought that there were some problems with Orwell's overall prose style. Uh, Huxley in every way was the better novelist. This strange rivalry that people set up between Orwell and Huxley as if they were warring cultural forces within their own times, that simply didn't exist.
5: And it is there. I mean, if you Google Huxley and Orwell... You'll find lots of articles about uh, this this kind of supposed rivalry between Mm. them. Mm, Like a title fight between Orwell and Huxley. That simply didn't
6: take place. Where it all comes from is a really interesting but a single paragraph in a book by Neil Postman from 1988 from memory. Who was a media theorist. Who was a media theorist and himself quite a good public philosopher. It's a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death where he says something along the lines of what we've been talking about. Orwell envisaged a totalitarian future, that we would be an enslaved people. Huxley envisaged a trivial future future, where we would become essentially a trivial and distracted people. So that's where this rivalry comes from. I'm not saying that the rivalry isn't in fact there, but it's probably in the use that we are now making of Orwell's work, rather than any kind of actual friction between the two of them.
7: pair the two classic books, 1984 by George Orwell and Brave New World by Aldous Huxley mm-hmm. through the lens of the late NYU media studies professor Neil Postman. Mm-hmm. Both those books describe totalitarian worlds we could find ourselves in, but one of them struck Postman as more relevant to today, and I think struck you that way too. Will you take us there?
1: Sure, absolutely. Uh, or um Postman was writing about this in his 1985 classic book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, which still has a great deal to teach us, even though it does precede the internet and the impact of digital technology. Uh, And I think some of the things uh, that he projects are off. But in terms of the Orwell-Huxley comparison, here's what he wrote. He wrote... What Orwell feared were those who would ban books. What Huxley feared was that there would be no reason to ban a book for there would be no one who wanted to read one. Orwell feared those who would deprive us of information. Huxley feared those who would give us so much information that we would be reduced to passivity and egoism. Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared that the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Orwell feared that we would become a captive culture. Huxley feared that we would become a trivial culture, preoccupied with the equivalent of the feelies, the orgy-porgy, and the centrifugal bumble puppy. In 1984, Orwell added, people are controlled by inflicting pain. In Brave New World, they are controlled by inflicting pleasure. In short, Orwell feared that what we hate will ruin us, Huxley feared that what we love will ruin us.
7: Another reference from the book. You quote the English poet John Milton, most famous for Paradise Lost, in a polemic against censorship Mm -hmm. to the British government in the 1700s that inspired Thomas Jefferson. Mm -hmm. But I think you
1: now find it naive. Right. Yeah. Well, here's the thing, is that what Milton said and what Jefferson later echoed was that if you place... Truth in a battle with falsehood, truth will inevitably, will always win. Milton believed that the people fundamentally grew wise with exposure to information. And Jefferson certainly believed this. Now, not all the founding fathers did. Madison didn't really believe it. Hamilton certainly didn't. And uh, the fact is that. We know now that information does not lead to a higher truth. We create our worlds from the seen and the unseen. The seen are the facts, but until they are marinated in our traditions and our values, until we place them into a narrative context that we agree with, all of those things, and we leave out the ones that don't fit – Information alone won't do it. Fact-checking alone won't stop Trump. The only way to stop Trump, if you want to stop Trump, is to make sure that those facts can fit into the lives of people who don't agree with you. In other words, you have to place them in a context. You have to explain their relevance. And then you have to wait. Yes, you have to wait for the world to bear you out.
7: But if the argument in the 1700s that inspired Jefferson, Jefferson and others was that uh, censorship is bad because more information leads to good political decision-making, mm-hmm. well, we certainly have more information in today's world than we've ever had before, mm-hmm. and there is no shortage of bad political decision-making. But are you suggesting that some of the very best values of our nation, because the First Amendment was based on this idea, are based on utopian wishful thinking and are bound to fail us?
1: Well, what are values? Values are our better angels. They don't necessarily reflect what's in the real world. But we have to understand that these are not mechanical principles. This is not physics. This is philosophy. We want to believe that information will make us better people, a more informed electorate, as Jefferson would say. But many people, including uh, John Adams, and and I quote him towards the end of the book. He says, remember, democracy never lasts long. It soon wastes, exhausts, and murders itself. The passions are the same in all men under all forms of simple government, and when when unchecked, produce the same effects of fraud, violence, and cruelty— individuals have conquered themselves, nations and large bodies of men never. In other words, we believe it is a liberal principle. It is one of our foundational beliefs that democracy is the best system and democracy works. And what did we see in this election? A sense that It didn't work, that something went wrong. And I examined the role of the press. I examined the masterful use of alternate forms of information and actually casting doubt on the very possibility of knowing reality.
5: The 1976 film, Network, was wildly successful, commercially and critically. It earned its creator, Paddy Chayefsky, an Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay, his third, by the way. Network is often listed among the greatest movies ever made and Dave Itzkoff knows the film Inside Out. He's a cultural reporter for the New York Times and author of the book Mad as Hell, the making of Network and the fateful vision of the angriest man in movies.
8: I think that its author, Paddy Chayefsky, was essentially a very pessimistic person, a very sort of dyspeptic kind of guy, certainly by the time he wrote that screenplay. I think he was somebody who sort of believed that human nature, if left unchecked, tended towards its worst inclinations, and particularly when that was applied to television and the media industry as he looked at it in the 1970s, he could imagine it going to a lot of kind of dire places. And the movie, as successful as it was financially, as, it, as much as it was praised artistically, the people who worked in media, who worked in news at the time, thought it was kind of fanciful and a little ridiculous. And I don't think those same people would say that about the movie today if they were around and watching these things side by side.
5: I mean, it was clearly an exaggeration, as you say, wasn't it? You know, it it was a very dark satire. People, I think, forget that it was intended to be humorous. But did, did Chayefsky, did he mean it to be prophetic or was he mostly critiquing his own times?
8: No, I th- well, I think his opinion, his reaction sort of vacillated from day to day. Certainly, once the movie became successful and he was getting a lot of praise as a kind of prophetic uh, figure, I think that was a little bit hard for him to take. And I think he would sort of give you different answers depending upon when you asked him. But I think I think you're right in the sense that he did intend it for it to be funny, and he was using media and television news as a kind of microcosm for all of society. He was just sort of honing in on one little slice of it and a part of the world that he knew well because he had worked in television as a TV screenwriter before he took off as a filmmaker. So that was a world that he at least had some experience in and he felt he could kind of use as a, a, you know, just a a sort of sample size to show you, well, you know, here's what happens when people become completely disconnected from each other and only interested in sort of pursuing profit and and going after the lowest common uh, denominator, et cetera. But certainly uh, the things that he foresaw in media and especially in news, media were we're pretty
5: on point. It also speaks on a deeper level, doesn't it, about the infantilisation of society in general and almost the subjugation of empathy to entertainment. Is that why it continues to be such an important film today? Is that why it has relevance today? Well, I think
8: it's kind of a fascinating film to watch now because, of course, it was created in, in an era where, at least in America, there were only three major broadcast networks. There was no cable TV news to speak of at all. There was no internet whatsoever. And yet, uh, so many of the lessons that it has and the messages that it has are completely applicable to a kind of 2019 media environment. The way that emotion completely overruns a kind of fact-based delivery system, and also the way that, uh, you know, larger and larger corporations kind of subsume you know these journalistic entities and completely demolish their mission in in the name of, you know, becoming more profitable, becoming more more able to grab wider and wider audiences with tawdrier and sleazier devices. All of that, I think, is, you know, it seems so far-fetched, and that's what offended people at the time, but I mean, we just accept it without even a second thought today.
5: The most famous scene in the film is about anger. It's where the character Mm -hmm. of the demagogic Howard Beale, the newscaster, urges the American people to rise up. Let's take a listen to that.
4: Open it and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore!
5: Davidskoff, that call to anger in and of itself, not matched by any determined course of action, that feels very familiar, doesn't it, in this era of strident populist politics?
8: Oh, absolutely. I think that, I mean, that's part of the message of the film or one of the ideas that Chayefsky uh, wanted to get at, certainly, that the power in particular that television had then and has now as a platform to, if you ju- if you just offer it over to somebody to vent their spleen and kind of, you know, rage wildly, that it's so dangerously potent, that communicating that message directly into, you know, millions of households and, and living rooms and just the, you know, again, the the power and the danger that that can possess and of course uh, the the audience of Network is sort of in on this additional layer that we as viewers of the film we know that Beale, Howard Beale is slowly going insane, he's almost completely lost his mind at this point in the film and yet to the viewing audience in the film of Network he seems to be completely sane, that he seems like he's somebody who's making a lot of sense in terms of the things he's complaining about and the fears that he has and is passing along to them. It's, it's kind of a dark joke, as powerful and enduring as, uh, as that mad as hell speech is, that we know as viewers, we're listening to sort of the unhinged rant of a, a lunatic.
5: And there are quite a few uh, contemporary world leaders in whom you can see uh, some of that that Beal attitude and that Beale technique.
8: I have absolutely no comment at this time. <laughs> uh, perhaps, yes, yes. Perhaps there are others that have, uh, you know, in some way or another adopted that methodology, no question. And, and you know, and Beale comes to it sort of accidentally uh, in his own weird organic way. I think other people are certainly doing it much more pragmatically and deliberately. And, you know, it's not only leaders, it's, you know, media figures, it's broadcasters, people who presumably, you know, they know the power and the danger of the field they work in. They are supposed to be, we once believed, operating within sort of ethical guidelines. And uh, those all, you know, went out the window long ago. Uh, certainly, you know, well after network, when network seemed like kind of a, a high-class uh, joke, that's part of what it was warning about. It was telling people there are no adults here. There's nobody at sort of the top of the architecture calling balls and strikes and saying, you you're misbehaving, and you can't do this. You know, once people start to, you know, loosen the guardrails and take them away, that there's just no going back for society. And that's applicable in a lot of different arenas.
4: Cyberspace is a metaphorical idea, uh... which is supposed to be the space where your consciousness is located when you're using uh... computer technology on the internet for example and uh... i'm not entirely sure it's uh, such a useful term but i think that's what most people mean by it
9: how does that strike you i mean that your consciousness is located somewhere other than in your why? Well, the, the, the most interesting thing about the term for
4: me is that it made me begin to think about where one's consciousness is when uh, interacting with other kinds of media. For example, even when you're reading, where, where are you? What is the space in which your uh, consciousness is located? And when you're watching television, uh, where... Uh, where are you? Uh, who are you? Because uh, people say with uh, the internet, for example, it's a little different in that you're always interacting, or most of the time, with another person. And when you're in cyberspace, I suppose you can be anyone you want. And uh, I think, uh, as uh, you, this uh, program indicates, it's worth it's worth talking about because this is um, uh, a new idea and uh, something very different from face-to-face co-presence with another human being.
9: Do you think this is a good thing or a bad thing or you haven't decided?
4: Well, no, I, I've, uh, mostly <laughs> I've mostly decided that uh, uh, new technology, uh, this kind or any other kind, is a, a kind of Faustian bargain. It always gives us something important, but it also takes away something that's important. That's been true of uh, the alphabet, and the printing press, and telegraphy right up through the computer. For instance, uh, when I hear people talk about um, the uh, information superhighway, it will become possible to shop at home and bank at home and um, uh, get your texts at home and get entertainment at home and so on. I often wonder if this doesn't signify the end of any uh, meaningful community life. Uh, I mean, when two human beings get together and they're co-present, there is built into it a certain responsibility we have for each other. And when people are co-present in family relationships and other relationships, uh, that responsibility is there. You can't just turn off a person. Uh, On the Internet, you can. Uh, And I wonder if this doesn't diminish uh, that uh, built-in human sense of responsibility we have for each other. Then also, uh, one wonders about social skills that after all talking to someone on the internet is a different proposition from being uh, in the same room with someone that not in terms of responsibility but just in terms of uh... revealing who you are and 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 discovering who the other person is as a matter of fact uh... i'm one of the few people uh... not only that you're likely to interview but maybe even ever meet who uh is opposed to the use of um, personal computers in school. Because school, it seems to me, has always largely been about how to learn as part of a group. School has never really been about individualized learning, but about how to be socialized as as uh, as a citizen and as a human being. Uh, so that we uh, we have important rules uh, in school, always emphasizing the fact that one is part of a group. And uh, I worry about the personal computer because it seems once again to emphasize individualized learning and individualized activity.
9: What what images come to your mind when you when you think about what our lives will be like in cyberspace?
4: Well, the, uh, the worst images uh, are of people who are overloaded with information which they don't know what to do with, have no sense of what is relevant and what is irrelevant. People who become information junkies. What do you mean? Well, you mean? The, the, uh, the, the problem in the 19th century with information was that we lived in a culture of information scarcity and so humanity addressed that problem beginning with photography and telegraphy in the the 1840s. We tried to solve the problem of overcoming the limitations of space, time and form and for about a hundred years we worked on this problem and we solved it in a spectacular way. And now, by solving that problem, we've created a new problem that people have never experienced before. Information glut, information meaninglessness, uh, information incoherence. I mean, if there are children starving in Somalia or any other place, it's not because of insufficient information. And if crime is rampant in the streets in New York and Detroit in Chicago or wherever... It's not because of insufficient information. And if people are getting divorced and mistreating their uh, children and if sexism and racism are blights on our social life, none of that has anything to do with inadequate information. Now, along comes cyberspace and the information superhighway. And everyone seems to have the idea that, ah, here, we can do it. If only we can have more access to more information, faster and in more diverse forms, at long last we'll be able to solve these problems. And I don't think it has anything to do with it.
9: Do you believe that, that that the fact that people are more connected globally will lead to a greater degree of homogenization? Well, uh, of the yeah. global society. Well, here, here's uh, the puzzle about that, Charlene. When when everyone was when McLuhan
4: talked about uh, the world becoming a global village, and uh, and when people ask, uh, as you did, about how connections can be made, uh, everyone seemed to think that uh, the world would become, in in some good sense, more homogenous. But we seem to be experiencing the opposite. I mean, all over the world, we see a kind of reversion to tribalism. People are going back to their tribal roots in order to find a sense of identity. I mean, we see it in Russia, in Yugoslavia, in uh, in Canada, in the United States. I mean, in our own country. Uh, Why is it that uh, every group now not only is more aware of its own grievances but seems to want its own education you know we want a an Afrocentric curriculum and a korean-centric curriculum and a, a greek-centered curriculum what is it about all this globalization of uh, communication that is making people return to more uh, to smaller units of identity it's a puzzlement
9: well, what do you think that people, society, should be doing to try and anticipate these negatives and be able to do something about them?
4: I think they should, everyone should um, uh, uh, be uh, sensitive to certain questions. Uh, for example, uh, when a new confronted with a new technology, whether it's a cellular phone or uh, uh, high-definition television or... Uh, cyberspace or internet, uh, the question, uh, one question should be, what is the problem to which this technology is a solution? And the second question would be, whose problem is it actually? And the third question would be, if there is a legitimate problem here that is solved by the technology, what Other problems will be created by my using this technology. About six months ago I bought a a, a new Honda Accord and the salesman told me that it had cruise control and I asked him what is the problem to which cruise control is the solution. By the way there's an extra charge for cruise control and uh, He said no one had ever asked him that before, but then he said, Well, it's the problem of keeping your foot on the gas. And I said, Well, I've been driving for 35 (laughs) years. I'd never found that to be a problem. I mean, am I using this technology or is it using me? Because in a technological culture, it is very easy to be swept up in the enthusiasm uh, for technology. And of course, all the technophiles and around all the people who adore technology and are promoting it uh, everywhere you turn.
10: When I talked to Amy Webb, the futurist, she stressed that she thinks the stuff Amazon's creating has the potential to benefit humanity. But she did have this critique of the data gathering that Daniel Roush is talking about here.
0: You know, Amazon's not great when it comes to transparency. So, uh, (laughs) you know, why certain data are being collected, under what circumstances and for whom, is almost never made understandable to the general public, nor to, you know, investors or researchers or, or anybody
10: else. She's got a point. Next time you're at Amazon's website, go to Alexa's FAQ page. Want to know what specifically your voice data is being used for? They have some answers, but it's mostly generic answers, like this one. Alexa uses your voice recordings and other information, including from third-party services, to answer your questions, fulfill your requests, and here's the vague ending. Improve your experience and our services. So that's basically all Amazon tells us. But Daniel Rauch, he disagrees that Amazon's not transparent enough. He actually says transparency and control are things customers want and get from Alexa devices. They want it to be transparent.
11: For example, you have access to everything that Alexa heard in the sense that Alexa's as a wake word is invoked and then those utterances are visible to you, whether that's in the application or online. And so there's complete transparency about that data. And then lastly, control. So you as a customer can go in, you can access that set of utterances, you can delete them one at a time or all at once. So we sort of build all of our experiences on that backbone of privacy and
10: security for customers. And we're very proud of that. They're kind of talking about two different things. Roush is talking about giving us the ability to see what's being recorded. But that doesn't answer Webb's question about all the other ways Amazon could be using the data. Webb's concerned, mostly just because we don't know. So I asked Roush about that. I asked him, are there teams at Amazon listening to skeptics and then working backward to make sure skeptics' fears don't actually become reality? When
11: we're at our best, we're, as, an, as a team, spending almost all of our time living in and thinking about the future. I know on my best days that that's really what I get to do. But it's not sort of working backwards from skeptics, so to speak. It's working backwards from, you know, the important things we can do for customers.
10: So it sounds like it's almost always starting from a place of optimism about how technology could improve the future versus starting from a place of doubt. Deeply optimistic
11: about it.
4: What is the problem to which this technology is a solution? And the second question would be whose problem is it actually? And the third question would be if there is a legitimate problem here that is solved by the technology, what Other problems will be created by my using this
11: technology. But it's not sort of working backwards from skeptics, so to speak. It's working backwards from, you know, the important things we can do for customers.
4: What other problems will be created by my using this technology?
0: We've just heard clips today starting with On The Media in 2006 discussing the impact of TV overtaking print media. C-SPAN Book TV spoke with Neil Postman in 1992 about society's tendency to gravitate toward handing over control to technology. Future Tense explained the two worldviews of Orwell and Huxley. Brooke Gladstone of On the Media then also spoke with Brian Lehrer about Orwell and Huxley, but with a focus on coming to terms with the failures of ever-greater levels of information in the wake of the Trump election. Future Tense did an analysis of the film Network and how it's been seen since its premiere. The MacNeil News NewsHour spoke with Neil Postman, this time about the Faustian bargain of technological innovation and his eerily accurate predictions about the future. And finally, we heard a clip from the Land of the Giants podcast about Amazon that I think about often ever since first hearing it, as an Amazon executive proudly proclaims that he does the exact opposite of what critics like the eerily accurate Neil Postman advises. He thinks nothing of potential downsides of technology and marches blindly and confidently into the future. And now, we would usually be hearing from you, but I don't have any voicemails for today, and I just have one quick thing to add, which is the definition of a Faustian bargain. And I'm sure that even if you didn't know the definition of a Faustian bargain by heart, you could figure it out from context clues And you'd almost certainly know it by its other name, which is basically a deal with the devil. But reading the full description from Britannica.com, which is where I happened to look it up, showed me how perfect of a description it is to describe the trade-offs that we've been seeing with the internet recently. So from Britannica.com, a Faustian bargain is A pact whereby a person trades something of supreme moral or spiritual importance, such as personal values or the soul, for some worldly or material benefit, such as knowledge, power, or riches. Okay, so far so good, kind of normal, but check this out. A Faustian bargain is made with a power that the bargainer recognizes as evil or amoral. Which I would pause to point out is how I would describe the internet companies, not as evil, not as intentionally bad, but as amoral, driven by market forces, capitalism, the insistence to make ever more profit, etc. Continuing, Faustian bargains are, by their nature, tragic or self-defeating for the person who makes them, because what is surrendered is ultimately far more valuable than what is obtained, whether or not the bargainer appreciates that fact. So, just let that Summer for a little while, and we will be getting more into the future of technology, not just the present of technology, in the next episode. But that's about all I have to add for today because I am at the end of a very long week and I've got the deep tired. I'm sure many of you know the feeling I'm talking about. Something crossed Amanda's screen recently about how humans aren't built to keep working full steam through the winter in the dark and the cold. You know, we're supposed to be huddled together for warmth and surviving off what stores of food we managed to harvest in the fall, that sort of thing. And it's not that there's nothing to do in the winter, obviously. We're not just supposed to be relaxing, but going full speed in the middle of January as if it was July feels like it's going against my nature in a deeply profound way, and my, my body is rejecting it. So I don't have anything else major to add to what I think was a fantastic episode, and I'll just say that if you want more from us, particularly something uplifting in these literally dark and cold times, I recommend our most recent members show, in which we had a lot of fun. It's not even the one that you non-members heard a sample of recently. There's a newer one than that, Uh, so if you've been thinking about trying out a membership, testing the waters a little bit, I think now would be a good time. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Scott, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofaleft.com support through our Patreon page, or from right inside the Apple Podcasts app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes, in addition to there being extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes, all through your regular podcast player. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left Podcast, coming to you twice weekly thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show, from bestofleft.com.